I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to David Bell, who has published... 12 books now uh, his new one is called the finalists it's a locked room novel about the lengths that some students will go to get into college we chat about knowing whether a deadline is approaching really helps with your writing also about the challenge of making locked room stories consistently engaging where really your protagonists can't go anywhere and you can hear why he's perfect for this show really because having a writing routine really works for him i've just found more comfort in the routine um i also just think it's a way that i grew up when i look back at my childhood my parents were very my parents who were not creative people they weren't writers but my my parents were pretty routine oriented. Um, you know, they like to stay on a schedule and they like to get places early and, and all that. And so I just think I kind of grew up in that environment of having a routine and sticking to a routine. And that works for me. Um, it might not work for other people. Other people don't like the routine and they like to say, hey, I want to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. And I get that. Um, but, but I think for me, I like to know what I'm going to do and I don't like surprises in that way. There is more with David Bell in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for being there. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, how they get ideas and plan their day and their life around that work to get the idea down. Now, thank you for bearing with me over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and also thank you if you managed to say hi up at bloody Scotland. Um, quite a few people stopped me. Uh, to tell me they enjoyed the podcast. If, if that was you, uh, thank you for listening before and thank you for still listening. This week, we're chatting to David Bell. He's published 12 novels. Uh, his The one before last, Kill All Your Darlings, was nominated for an Edgar Award. Now, the new novel is called The Finalists. It looks at the lengths that prospective students and colleges will go to survive in the current academic world. Um, get your head around this. Uh, it, you really do get thrown into it. Have a listen to the blurb. Uh, on a beautiful spring day, six college students with nothing in common besides a desperate inability to pay for school gather to compete for the prestigious Hyde Fellowship. You have Milo, the frontrunner, Natalia, the brain, James, the rule follower, Sydney, the athlete, Duffy, the cowboy, Emily, the social justice warrior. The six of them uh, must surrender their devices when they go into Hyde House. Once inside, the doors locked behind them. Who will get this coveted scholarship? But then one of the six finalists drops dead. And the other students fear they're being picked off one by one. It's kind of like the breakfast club, only people start dying. We talk about why knowing you've done it once can really help you believe that you can do it again. Uh, also why he's quite a routine person and how that's actually changed a little through the years. You can hear how he balances writing with teaching writing where he works at an American university. And there's loads about the book. It's a good chat to dive back into after a week away. So let's get into it with what David Bell sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I'm really fortunate that in my house, the front of our house has a gigantic window. 
So I'm looking out on my front yard, um, which is very quiet right now. Um, but I'm looking out into the yard and there are a lot of, you know, cars go by and joggers go by. And so I'm easily distracted by the people going by my house. Um, but I'm also at my desk, which is in the front room. It's a gigantic desk that really is a dining room table, which I stole and made my desk. And it's covered with books that I should read, but have not mostly not read yet. Um, so I have a lot of books on the desk and then this view of my front yard and the street in front of my house. What is there that's creative and perhaps inspiring around your front room? Uh, you've got the fantastic view. Have we got any artworks, maybe pictures of you with the family, maybe uh, uh, framed copies of covers that you've had before? We do have a lot of good artwork in this room. Uh, in the town where we live, we, we've gotten to know a lot of visual artists, painters mostly, and um, we have spent a lot of money buying some uh, art over the years. And so I do see some artwork by friends of mine, and that is inspiring, even though they're not books. Um, the artwork, the creative work by my friends who are painters um, is always greeting me, and so that's inspiring to me. Um, I do have some copies of my previous books sitting around. Um, I try not to look at them too much, but, you know, every once in a while I'll pick one of them up or see one of them. And that too is inspiring because more than anything, it just reminds me that I have done this before. And when I sometimes find myself stuck, um, I can look and say, well, look, I have done this before, so I should be able to do it again. It's interesting. Many, many, many writers I've I've spoken to have outlined that exact issue. That it's really good to surround yourself with things that you've done before because it reminds you, I can, I, I've done this before. I can get through this. Just taking you out of your room for just a second. Uh, what does that feeling feel like? I've never got more than say twenty thousand words through a book myself. What What does it feel like when you cannot see the light at the end of uh, the writing tunnel? Well, it's it's a difficult feeling, I think, for any writer to feel stuck or to feel not sure about what comes next. And I think that when I was younger and less experienced, I think that that feeling could take control of me more. Um, and and it, I mean, it, it, I understand why people use the phrase writer's block, because it does feel like a block. It can feel like I'm beating my head against the wall, which I've never literally done. But I'm just saying, like, it can feel that. It can feel like an invisible force field or something that is stopping me from going forward. So I think when I was younger and less experienced and maybe before I had published books, it was easier to give in to that feeling um, and, and to let that feeling take more control. Now that I'm fortunate enough to have published 14 books, um, and that I have book contracts going into the future, then um, I, I, can, I can look back and say, well, look, I've done this before. And having future contracts and having deadlines can also be very motivating because I know that if I finish this, there's a reward that's coming down the road, right? The book will be published. There will be a little bit of money there and all that. So so on both sides, I think that the experiences I've had in the past and the things I have to look forward to in the future help get through that. Let me just take you back to your room. So we've covered inspirational things that you might have around you. What about the more practical side of things? On your desk, would I find many notebooks, maybe a post-it notes that with plot points, maybe a, a whiteboard somewhere? Yeah, I do keep um, a spiral-bound notebook, um, actually more than one of them, that have notes written down for the story. So if I, I'm always afraid that I'm going to forget something if I have a good idea. Um, so I will sometimes write those ideas down in a spiral-bound notebook. Again, as I mean, my handwriting has never been great. If you went, if you could go back in a time machine to, you know, when I was in the sixth grade and I was being taught by nuns in Catholic school, 
they they were always on me about how bad my handwriting was. Um, so and it's only gotten worse. Um, so if you looked at those notes, you would think they were written by, you know, I don't know, someone who couldn't hold a pen or whatever. Um, but I can read it. So I do have those kinds of notes written down. I also have a, a calendar to try to keep track of all the things that I have to do. Um, it, it makes me look organized, but the truth is that my wife, Molly, has a calendar on her computer for our lives. She's much more organized than I am, but I do have a calendar out to try to remind me of when I have to do things um, and when deadlines are coming up and stuff like that. So that stuff kind of makes me look like I'm organized, but um, but it does help me stay on track a little bit. How much does a deadline in your calendar help you stay on track though? Is it more that you know, okay, in four weeks I've got to submit something or is it more a case of in four days I need to submit something? So holy hell, let's get cracking. It does motivate. Um, and I know, you know, the good thing is that the deadlines are set in place pretty far in advance. So I know well in advance where, when they're coming and then it just, I mean, in my case, the deadline actually gives me peace of mind when it's a little farther down the road, because then I can say it's manageable. And writing a novel seems manageable if it's broken down into, oh, you know, I have, uh, you know, six months to do this or four months to do this or whatever. Then I know that I don't have to write an entire novel in one day or in one week that that I think is when people feel overwhelmed and daunted is when you think like, Oh my gosh, it's a novel. I have to write 80,000 words or I have to write 90,000 words. But I try to think of it in terms of, okay, if I have to write, you know, approximately 80, 90, a hundred thousand words, but I have months to do it. Then I only have to write a thousand words a day or 1500 words a day or whatever. And if I do that for X number of days, I will have the book finished. So to me, having the deadline, the knowledge of the deadline and the knowledge that the deadline is a little bit down the road, then I can think of the book in smaller increments. And I don't think, oh, I have to write this massive thing. Uh, you know, I have time to do it. And do you do it that, uh, I guess, strictly? So will you say, all right, I've got six months to do it that's uh, 180 days or whatever it is. Uh, if I write, you know, 500 words a day, I'll get that done. Do, do, do you literally timetable that yourself? I do think of it that way. I mean, I don't plan it that way. I don't, I don't, I don't stick to such a strict routine about it, but it gives me peace of mind to be able to think of it that way. So if I say, you know, I have, X, like you just laid out, if I have X number of days to do it, and if I wrote X number of words a day, I would get there. I don't necessarily strictly stick to that, but that does give me peace of mind in advance to say, okay, this is manageable each day. Each day, if I wrote X number of words, I would get there. Uh, again, rather than feeling like I just have to write all these words and I don't know when I'm going to do it. That just that's just a crutch for me to think about it that way. And we get quite niche and nerdy on the show. So on your desk, what are you writing on? If it's a laptop, what writing software? If it's writing software, get this. What what typeface do you use? What font, David? Oh, okay. Well, I it's a just a basic MacBook Air. Um, we're we are a Mac household here. Um, so it's a MacBook Air, and I write in um, Microsoft Word. And it's Times New Roman 12, um, which is basically what I think most people use, or at least what most people have to use when they submit a manuscript. Um, I prefer Garamond. I think Garamond is like a prettier looking font to write in, but I know eventually my publisher wants it in Times, so I just go with Times from the beginning. I usually get up around seven o'clock or so. I mean, in my younger days, I didn't get up that early. But as as more of an adult, we've become earlier risers. So I do get up around seven o'clock. Um, I eat. The, I'm I'm a very routine 
oriented person. So I eat the same thing every morning when I get up, which is uh, uh, Kashi uh, honey nut cereal. Um, so I do eat that. Um, and I, and then I go for a walk. Um, there's a cemetery down the street from my house that has a very nice walking path. And I go and I walk in the cemetery for an hour. Uh, I do three laps around the cemetery and this early in the morning, there's no one there, but the, the guys who work in the cemetery who are usually when I get there, they're, they're digging a grave or two in the morning, um, and me. And so we're the only people there. Um, there are a couple exceptions. There are some, there are some people, other people in the neighborhood who walk early and I, and I know them, but I take my walk in the cemetery for about an hour and I, I use that time usually, um, to ruminate on my own mortality. Um, but also to think about what I'm going to write that day. So if I know that that day I need to write, you know, you know, the chapter where the, you know, the, the main character confronts their father or whatever is happening, I think about that as I walk so that when I come back, I'm ready to do that. Um, I come back um, this time of year in Kentucky. It is brutally hot and humid. So I come back dripping with sweat and I look like I've really exerted myself, although I probably haven't that much. It's just because you walk out the door and you're immediately covered in sweat at this time of year. So I come back and I shower and I and I do all that and I um, have coffee and I tend to start by just making like checking email and making sure that there there are no disasters happening or no one needs anything from me on email, you know, no urgent questions, no, no strange things going on. And assuming all that is clear, I start to write. Um, and I will have like a burst of writing in the morning at that time, where, where I probably do about half of the writing I would do for the day, like a chapter or so. I tend to write shorter chapters. So, so maybe I get like one chapter through one chapter at that point. Um, then it would be time to have lunch and I would have lunch and then I would go back and write more, uh, maybe write another chapter or finish whatever I have to finish for that day. Um, and I'm not someone who is, I know there are some people who are, who continue to be productive through the evening or at night. And I'm not really someone who does that. I don't, I don't write much in the evening or at night or almost never. Um, it's just not, it's just not my thing. I have, I know writers who do that. I have a friend who would write all night. You know, he would start writing at midnight and write all night until the sun came up. I don't do that. So when I finish writing for the day, then, um, in the, in the afternoon or late afternoon, then like if I'm working my day job as a college professor, then there would be stuff to do for that. But in the summer when I'm not teaching, I'm a, I'm a free agent, um, and I will spend the rest of the day reading, um, spending time with my wife or with friends or whatever is going on. Um, if Molly and I are wrapped up in a TV show, we just watched the documentary version of The Staircase. So if we're wrapped up in something like that, then that's what we have to look forward to. Um, or I will, uh, I'm a big baseball fan. So we're in the middle of the baseball season here. I'm a fan of the Cincinnati Reds who are terrible this year, but I still listen to them on the radio every night. So I'll listen to the Reds game or something like that. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing. Just the evenings tend to be pretty mellow and I read because I love to read obviously. Um, and usually, you know, we're in bed by, you know, 10 30, 11, something like that. Again, as we've gotten older, we've you know, we used to be up late, much later. Um, but now as adults, we're usually going to bed by 1030 or 11 and lather, rinse, repeat. The whole thing starts over the next day. You said that you don't really work later on in the afternoon. But when you find yourself maybe reading, maybe watching a, a telly show with your wife, uh, are, is your book still there churning away? Are you having to kind of fight down that urge to constantly be thinking about things? Yeah, I think that when... I'm in the middle of writing a book. The book is, is always there. It's always in the back of my mind. And I'm always, I'm always thinking of 
Um, what's going to come next? Um, did the thing I just wrote today work or did it go down the wrong track? Um, am I taking it in the right direction? Is there something I can do better? Is there something I need to add? Is there something I need to take out? Sometimes that really becomes a problem when I try to read for fun. Sometimes my, the book I'm working on or my own writing intrudes on that a little bit because I find myself thinking about my book and not thinking about the book that I'm trying to read. Um, or something happens in the book I'm trying to read that sends me back to thinking about my own book. Usually it's that I'm reading a book that I really like by a really talented, accomplished author. And I think to myself, this stuff I'm writing is not as good as this person, or this person is doing whatever so much better than I'm doing it. And I need to go back and try to be as good as this, what this person is doing. That's usually how it works. Um, so yeah, the book is always there and, and it's always bubbling below the surface and sometimes it intrudes, um, or sometimes I just find myself, you know, spacing out and thinking about what am I going to do the next day or what did I do today or whatever. And I, I think that's just part of the writer's life that the book is always simmering in our brain. Other people don't know what we're thinking about or don't know that we're thinking about it, but, but it's always there for us and very alive for us. You said that you're quite a routined person, wake up at a certain time, go for your three laps of the cemetery, then you get back and you start writing. Why do you think that is? Many people, I think, find that the, the joy of being a, an author, perhaps, is that you are able to be a bit more free-formed with it. And I know that you have a day job lecturing at, uh, at college. Why, why do you keep yourself to such a strict routine even through the summer break? I don't know, except that I, I just, as I've gotten older, I've just found myself someone who likes the routine more and that having a routine allows me to be more productive. I like to know what I, you know, like what stuff is happening in my life on a certain day. Do I have to go to the doctor? Do I have to go, you know, do this or that or the other thing? And then that allows me to plan in advance so that I can produce what I want to produce with my writing. I think the writing is all, I mean, the routine is also important because I have the day job. So there, so there are demands on my time from the day job and everything. And so sticking to a routine allows me to know that I'm, I'm going to get a certain number of words written during the day. And, and then, and I know I'm going to produce that even if other things are going on, whether it's the day job or like the trip to the doctor, the trip to the bank, the trip to the whatever, right? So I've just found more comfort in the routine. Um, I also just think it's a way that I grew up when I look back at my childhood, my parents were very, my parents who were not creative people, they weren't writers, but my my parents were pretty routine oriented. Um, you know, they like to stay on a schedule and they like to get places early and, and all that. And so I just think I kind of grew up in that environment of having a routine and sticking to a routine. And that works for me. Um, it might not work for other people. Other people don't like the routine and they like to say, Hey, I want to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. And I get that. Um, but, but I think for me, I like to know what I'm going to do and I don't like surprises in that way. When you sit down of a morning, uh, I, I know that you, you, you like to know vaguely where you're headed in terms of word count, but perhaps you don't s stick too strictly to one. Uh, what's the aim? What's the goal? Where do you want to be done and finished when you knock off in the afternoon? I want to feel like I've written a, a complete chapter or two, maybe three, if it's, you know, if if it's a really good day or if the chapters are shorter or whatever, I want to feel like I've gotten to a, a clear stopping point. I know some writers sometimes give the advice of stop. I think Hemingway used to say this stop in the middle of something and stop when you know that there's more to come afterward. And I understand that, but I like to feel like I've reached a, a real stopping point, like the end of a chapter or the end of a scene. 
I like that feeling of a clean break at the end. So, so I look for that. I want to have that feeling and I want to feel like whatever I've written in that day has advanced the story. It moved, you know, moved the ball forward, advanced the plot, advanced the trouble, deepened the character, whatever. I want to feel like something has been accomplished in that way so that I like that feeling of there being a clean break and a clean goal accomplished. Then I feel much more content when I walk away from the computer in the afternoon. Whereas if I feel like I haven't quite done that, then it kind of nags at me the rest of the evening until I get to go back. When you're working as a college professor, I, I, I don't know your schedule, but <clears throat> uh how kind of fluid are you around that even with your strict routine so like if you uh if you've got a morning lecture will you come back and do work in the afternoon or will you just put that down and say you know what, i'll do it tomorrow it's tougher for me to stick to my routine when i'm teaching because obviously that's a demand on my time i have to prepare for class i have to be in class i have to meet with students and all that and so um on days when i teach um, I don't expect to get as much writing done. And maybe some days there's just, just going to be no writing done because the day job takes precedent and, or, or it's just a longer day or whatever. And I don't and, – and I've had to just – I think this is something for people to think about as writers. Um, sometimes I think if and – and I know I have done this for myself – Sometimes it feels like if we don't write at all during a day or we don't have a particularly productive day, I think we tend to beat ourselves up, you know, and, and feel like, oh, that was frustrating or I didn't produce as much as I, did, I needed to or should have. I've learned over the years to say, um, especially on a day when I have to teach and go to the day job or if something else more, you know, something big is happening in real life, you know, um, it, it's okay to say it's okay to not have the most productive day if other things happen and to let myself off the hook for that, to not get too hung up on like, okay, I didn't, I didn't have time to write at all today, or I just wrote a little bit today. That's okay. So to me, that's the big thing that I've had to think about when I, when I am teaching, which is about to start, you know, like it starts again in another month is not to have such high expectations for my writing side of life on a day when I have to go and teach and to say that's okay to let that not be such a big demand on those days. How hard was that to come to terms with when you're someone that is busy with a job and you also want to get your own books published and they've gone down very well. So there's a clamor from fans for them. How easy was it to give yourself a break and to let yourself off when you need to? I don't know that it was easy. I mean, what I had to recognize was I was um, I was putting all this pressure on myself and I was making myself unhappy. And I think that, like, for instance, if I if I taught all day and I, you know, come home at like four o'clock in the afternoon or five o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, if I and I, and I feel tired as, as anybody feels tired when they come home from a day of work or just mentally drained or whatever. If I forced myself to write, if I said to myself, now you have to sit down and write X number of words. First of all, I'm probably going to make myself unhappy by saying now that you've worked all day, do more work. And also that probably if I'm, if I'm straining and forcing to write those words at the end of the day, they're probably not going to be as accomplished as if I was doing it in a, you know, freer, looser environment and was not trying to force myself. So I think I learned that I was making myself unhappy by, by forcing myself to do something. And, and I was making myself more tired and more mentally drained than I needed to. So it was really just reading my own moods and my own, you know, my own brain power and saying, look, something's not right here if I'm forcing myself to do this. And I just had to learn from that experience and say, don't, don't force it. Don't make, make yourself unhappy or overly tired when it doesn't really need to be that way. 
We spoke about writer's block earlier on and how maybe looking at a book that you've written before can help out. What, what, what else do you do when the words aren't coming out that well, when you are struggling? Some have a cup of coffee at a certain days, some take themselves off for a walk or listen to a particular piece of music. What do you do? I do think the most basic thing is just to walk away a little bit because, again, I said earlier, like it's, it, it feels like there's a, a block there beating your head against the wall. I think just sitting there and staring at the, the metaphorical blank page or blank screen um, is not always the most productive way to do it. And so I do find that if I go for a walk or if I just go do something else or if I just leave it for the day, you know, and go about my life and have a good night's sleep, that that then my brain is able to work on it, even if I'm not consciously working on it. And so, you know, the subconscious is brewing and, and thinking up solutions to the story. So I do think stepping away sometimes and doing something else, reading, going for a walk, uh, watching a movie, whatever, can get me away from it. Um, I'm fortunate that my wife, Molly, is also a writer. So I can talk to her about it and say, hey, I am stuck. I don't know what the character is going to do next. They could do this or they could do this. And then just talking through it sometimes with someone is also a way to figure out an answer. Um, but I do, I do definitely think like taking a little step back, doing something else for a while, sometimes an answer can just bubble up and present itself that way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with more from David in just a sec. Uh, just popping up if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do, if you like hearing these chats with the best authors around, uh, you can, I guess, thank us for it really there's many ways that you can do that uh, one is on patreon by becoming a patreon backer patreon.com forward slash writers routine just a few dollars a month helps us keep going it helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can for that you get our thanks you get merch there is bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show it's uh, probably the the thing that you can do that goes the furthest and it doesn't need to be a lot Anything that you can contribute goes an extraordinarily long way. I'm eternally grateful of, of everything in, I mean, trying times at the moment, please. Uh, you can also give us a follow on Twitter. We're at WritersPod there. Drop us a review on Apple if that's how you're listening. And you can get in touch at writersroutine.com. Let's get back to it then. This week, chatting to David Bell, who has published many books, uh, teaches English and writing. His new novel is called The Finalists. It's all about a group of prospective students locked in a school they hope to join, only they start being killed. We talk about how he made sure that he wasn't veering into cliché when writing about school stock characters. You've got the brain, the athlete, the rule follower... 
how does he make sure he's he's writing them uniquely when some forms of these characters have been written before? Also, you can hear about the challenge of making a story in which it's all about six people being locked in the same room engaging. How do you go about making that different and gripping? And we pick things up talking about the new book, The Finalists, and the first moment that the idea came to him. My editor at the time, um, it was time for me to come up with ideas for the next book. And I usually just send my editor a few, you know, a few like one sentence ideas for a story. And I had done that. And none of them really like got her that excited, which sometimes happens. And she came back and said, well, have you ever thought of writing a locked room story? And I had not really thought of that. Um, But when she said that, it was intriguing because it was something I'd never done. And it sounded like a really difficult challenge. Um, The Finalist is my 14th book. And I think one of the things that happens when someone's writing a book every year, like I am, and, and I've written a number of books in a row, is that we have to make sure we're not repeating ourselves, right? That sometimes I'll come up with an idea and my editor or my agent will say like, well, that kind of sounds like the book you wrote two years ago. Or, you know, I come up with an idea and it's like, you know, so, someone murders someone by, you know, hitting them over the head with a candlestick. And, you know, my agent or my editor will say like, oh, you know, two books ago, you had someone hit someone over the head with a candlestick, right? So that's part of the challenge is coming up with a new, a new idea, something that is different than the other books. And also, I think maybe my editor was trying to push me in a little bit of a more challenging direction. So when she said that, I said, yeah, why not give it a try? And then, um, so my previous book, Kill All Your Darlings, was set on a college campus. And like we've said, I teach at a university. Um, and And so I went back to my editor and said, what if I combined the locked room story with a story set on a college campus? And she said, that sounded great. And so that was really the jumping off point was just to say, here were these two components, a, a dark academic thriller with the locked room story. So I had that, that general structure, and then I had to figure out the specifics of what would be going on there. And so I drew on a couple of my own experiences. One is that right now I teach at a big public university, but my first job, my previous teaching job was at a little private college. And so And private colleges in America um, are very expensive, but a lot of them are still struggling financially because um, we we haven't all had enough children. So there aren't enough people to fill the colleges right now, um, including someone like me who did not have any children. Um, So we haven't produced enough 18 to 22-year-olds. So colleges are struggling to get enough enrollment. Um, So small colleges are having financial trouble. And the school that I taught at before had financial trouble. And I saw how much pressure that put on the institution to survive. And then the other part of the equation was when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, I grew up, my parents didn't have any money. When it was time for me to go to college, I had to take out a student loan. And it took me a long time after college to pay that loan back. And so I experienced that side of things from the student side. And so I I put all those things together in the book, the college that's trying to survive, the college that's trying to court a wealthy donor, and then the six students who are locked in the house who are struggling to pay for college. And that was directly based on my experience that I remember of not having enough money to pay for college, not have, worrying about paying off a student loan, taking forever to pay off a student loan. I put all of that stuff into the book. Now, here's my favorite part of, of any dissection of a plot is that that's your initial jumping off moment. But then you need a, a plot. You need something for your kids to do over the next 400 or so pages. How much are you knowing about that before you start writing? What questions are you asking yourself before you start tapping that first sentence. Yeah, that and it's a it's a particular challenge in a locked room story because they're in 
they're in one house for eight hours. So they can't, no one can run away. Uh, no, no new people can come into the situation. Um, they don't have any electronic devices. So, so that was really the challenge was coming up with enough events to, to have a plot. The, the, one of the things that I did was that the plot became structured around um, this process that, that the donor requires the students to go through. So the donor has this strict schedule for the students to experience. There's tea in the morning. Um, there's a toast. Um, there's a written exam. There's lunch. There's a bourbon toast. There's an interview a personal interview. So that provided the framework for the story. And then as each of those moments come up in the book, things are going wrong. Um, It's not a spoiler to say that once they're locked in the house, somebody ends up dying. So it's a continual because of the, the framework of this process that they're going through to win the scholarship. Um, that gave me events that came up. And then, of course, sometimes the events didn't happen on time and sometimes they did. But those gave me moments to build the story around. So generally, how much did you know about the entire thing? How this would begin and end and the middle, how it would be structured when you did sit down and start writing? How complete was it? It's, I had a pretty detailed sense of what was happening and a pretty detailed sense of the big events that were going to happen throughout the book. And I always know those. Um, and I knew, I knew the direction. I knew where it was going to end up. Um, but still, along the way, I had to come up with more things that were happening in the course of the book. Because um, unless I want the, the outline to be you know 50 or 100 pages... Um, I needed I needed stuff to happen. So um, I had a pretty good sense, but I still had to come up with more stuff that was happening inside the house and more dynamics between the characters that I hadn't anticipated, you know, more conflict between the characters that I hadn't entirely anticipated yet. Many writers say one of the hardest things about telling a story is very, very simply getting two characters to be in a room together, <laughs> like finding different reasons for that to happen. When you've done it as a locked room story, to a degree, that cuts half of that challenge out. But then it gives you one in that your narrative can't really go very far. You know, you can't suddenly take people to another country to spice things up. How challenging was that for you to keep making six characters in a room engaging. Yeah, that is the challenge because um, they, they can't, I couldn't use space, you know, like in a, in a story that's not a locked room story, the character can, you know, say, oh, I went to the grocery store and I ran into this mysterious character who told me this piece of information. You cannot do that in a locked room story. So what I did was, um, First of all, from the very beginning of the book, there's a threat outside the house. There are protesters outside the house who are protesting the family that has founded the college. So there are people outside the house who are presenting a threat. They throw a brick at the house. They throw, you know, they do some other things to the house. So like there's this threat outside that provides some issues. And then inside the house, um, it's a it's an old house and it's a it's a three story house. So the way that the characters have some room to move around, they go upstairs to the top floor. Um, they go down into the cellar, which is dank and dark and creepy. Right? Um, they move throughout the space of the first floor of the house. You know, there's a music room and there's a parlor and there's a dining room and a kitchen and all that. So I found myself taking full advantage of all the space that was inside the house and even providing the threat outside the house that was, that was looming over them. And so that was how I tried to get the characters to go do different things. And if there are, there are eight people in the house when the book starts, the six students, the administrator and the donor. um, So different characters could be in different parts of the house. So, you know, two people are upstairs and two people are in another room. And when two people are in another room talking, 
then the people who are in a different room are saying to themselves, well, what are they doing in the other room? What are they talking about? Why do they feel like they're away from us, right? And that was a way to heighten the paranoia and the suspicion is that when people are moving around, everybody's wondering, well, what are they doing upstairs? What are they doing in the basement? What are they doing in the kitchen? And just took full advantage of everything that was available in the house. Now, your characters, the uh, the six prospective college students, you've got uh, the front runner and there's a character who is the brain, the rule follower, the athlete, the cowboy, the social justice warrior, um, which I struggle to say. Now, these are... What one could say that there are, there are types of archetypes in these characters that we have seen versions of in other stories, everything from The Breakfast Club and onwards. Uh, how are you making sure that these characters don't fall into, I guess, common kind of high school cliches? Right. I mean, and generally they are types um, who we've all seen in, in school and in colleges. And it's interesting that you mentioned the breakfast club because it's kind of like that, right? It's kind of like the breakfast club. Oh, it's the ultimate locked, yeah, the, the ultimate locked room story, which I've just figured out. No, yeah. no, it is because it was it was five kids locked, you know, stuck in, in a high school on a Saturday with no one else there, right? Um, so it's kind of like the breakfast club, except people start to die, right? Um which I haven't seen The Breakfast Club for a long time, but I don't think anybody dies in The Breakfast Club. Um, so it is generally starting with those types of characters. But the thing that I tried to do in the story, and I think it's one of the things that makes the finalists interesting, is um, at ver- any, and, and you can do this in a movie or in a, in a full-length novel, at various times during the book, each of the characters gets to talk about themselves and we learn about the backstory of each of the characters and we learn why each of the characters needs the money that is being offered in this scholarship. So I hope that by showing the backstory of each of the characters, we see them as more than just types. Um, We see that each one of them has some sort of struggle in their life, um, whether it's that they um, have financial difficulties at home, that they're not getting along with their parents. There's one student who is a non-traditional student, so he's older and he has children and one of his children has a health problem and that's why he needs the scholarship money. So each of them get to tell their story. Each of them reveals their backstory. Um, and, And at various times, each one of them becomes a suspect because of the things we learn about them and because of the dynamics that have occurred between the characters before the story starts. So I think it's very easy. You know, I think about this as a college professor. I look at my students when they're sitting there in class, and it's easy for me to look at these 20-year-olds and say, oh, they've got it easy. They're in college. They're having fun. They don't have anything to worry about. They don't have the the stresses and the concerns that adults have who have to, you know, pay a mortgage and, and, you know, worry about their health and all that. It's easy for me to look at my students and think that. But when I get to know my students, I find out all sorts of things that my students are dealing with. They have financial trouble. They might be working two jobs to pay for college. I've had students who have come to me and said, my father is incarcerated in prison and I haven't seen him in 15 years or something like that. I've had students who come to me and say, I had a fight with my parents and they kicked me out and I'm sleeping in my car or I'm sleeping on a friend's couch or whatever. So I think the book does that, that we're able to see beyond the type and we're able to see that being a college student is not all fun and games, right? It's it's that students, and especially the students at the university where I teach, a lot of the students are dealing with some real, real world stuff. Um, and I think some of that comes out in the book, that their lives are much more complicated than we realize. Now, lastly, you've written 14 books. <clears throat> and I know no author would ever say that they were the finished article because that would render everything else pointless. But at what point in those 14 novels, David, did you kind of feel, all right, I'm getting this now. I'm finding my voice. I, I know how this is done. I do think that that has happened for me over the last few years. 
And I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know that if it's just the amount of time that I've been doing it. Um, I don't know if it's that I have a better handle on the insecurities that all authors have and, and the worries that all authors have. I don't know if it's that the, the books I've written recently um, have, have felt more um, like I'm, I'm saying things and writing about things that feel closer to me in a different way. I don't know what it is. If it's just, if it's just getting older and feeling like, Hey, I've done this for a while and I'm starting to feel more confident or more comfortable or whatever. Um, it, maybe it's all of those things, but I do feel like in the last couple of years, I've felt more like I'm hitting my stride than I've ever felt. And I felt more confident in what I'm doing. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't individual days when I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I feel completely lost. Right. Um, and you know, one, you know, one bad review could come along or one, you know, something could come along and knock all that down, you know, but, but I do feel like in recent years, I've been more comfortable with what I'm writing. I felt more confident in what I'm writing. I feel like I know more than I did before. And, and that's a good feeling. And I hope everybody uh, develops and evolves to get to that point in their career. That is it for this week on the show. Thank you so much to David Bell for coming on. You can get a copy of his brand new book, The Finalists, now. Next week, we're chatting to Martha Jocelyn, who has written over 50 books for children of all ages. Everything from picture books, right the way down to early readers, all the way up to teenage stuff as well. Uh, Very excited to pick her brains about different styles of writing, for different ages that's next week with Martha on the show in the meantime you can support us patreon.com forward slash writers routine uh, get in touch writersroutine.com and let me know what you think on twitter too we are at writers pod there and I will see you next week with Martha Jocelyn on the show until then bye <laughs>